Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Bipolar podcast hosted by Emma Bell and brought to you by Bipolar UK. You can find all of our resources at www.bipolaruk.org. Welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Bipolar for Bipolar UK and this episode I've got Professor Alan Young with me and I'm going to get him to introduce himself in his own words and tell you what he does and then we're going to get into why he's in this industry and I'm going to ask him some questions, some of the top questions that people living with bipolar, people supporting those living with bipolar like to ask and like to know. So welcome Professor Alan Young, how are you? Thanks, Emma. Do call me Alan. Uh, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I hope you're okay. I'm doing all right today. Yeah. Um, so, Alan, can you tell me um, what you do, where you are, and your interest in this this area of mental health with bipolar? Okay. Well, um, I'm a psychiatrist, so I'm a registered medical practitioner. And I qualified in medicine in the early 1980s. And then I trained in uh, medicine, surgery and psychiatry. And then I did a further training in research, got a PhD. And I've been working as an academic psychiatrist in the UK and Canada. And for the last 10, 11 years in uh, 12 years in London. Mm-hmm. And my current position is as a professor in King's College London and I work in the Maudsley Hospital where I see people with mood disorders which encompasses both bipolar disorder and depression treatment resistant depression and so on and so forth. Okay and can you tell us um, what has sort of led you into the particular interest in mood disorder work and working with people that have bipolar um, what led you into that space specifically? Well, I was a trainee psychiatrist in Edinburgh mm-hmm. and I did my first postgraduate degree, which was an MPhil in brain imaging and schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in schizophrenia. And um, then after I did that, a fellowship, a bequest actually left by a family uh, to the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh came up, the, the John Alfred Margaret and Stuart Sim Fellowship, known as the Sim Fellowship. And that was really to uh, train someone in mood disorders. And uh, I thought I'd do that, actually. So I switched from um, psychosis to mood disorders, although the two overlap. And then I completed that. I then went to Oxford, where I worked uh, with... Uh, some of the uh, researchers in the Department of Psychiatry and in Pharmacology. And then I went and worked for a long period of time in, in, in Newcastle. So I didn't really, uh, I mean, obviously, I went to medical school. I started off in medicine. Uh, the reason I became a psychiatrist is because during my clinical years, I, I tried different things, you know, because you have attachments in surgery, medicine, general mm-hmm. practice, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And I couldn't really see myself doing most of them for the next 35, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, many of them are exciting uh, and interesting, but I, none really seemed to fit me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought I could do psychiatry. I thought that would be interesting because there's a lot of different 
challenges and psychiatry is a very broad church so that's how I got into psychiatry and when I got into it um, I started doing research and I found I quite liked it and then as I've told you I ended up going down the mood disorders route and I've been doing that really for over 30 years now. Mm. And so I mean this this man knows his stuff basically guys. <laughs> <laughs> or, or or not possibly <laughs> or not I'm sure you do um what from your own personal like just your own personal kind of viewpoint what is the most interesting from a practitioner's side from someone that researches it and treats and looks after these people what's the most interesting or surprising thing about bipolar disorder and those that live with bipolar disorder for you well, I'll I'll start broadly, if you don't mind, sure. and sort of narrow in narrow into bipolar disorder, um, because it seems to me that in general, although that there are exceptions to this, there's different times of the life cycle for different disorders. So, uh, if you think about most physical health disorders, things like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, they really begin to impact people in midlife. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 40s, 50s onwards. Uh, now, of course, there are physical disorders which onset in childhood and so on, but, you know, it really is an uptick and it becomes much more of a problem uh, in later life. Uh, psychiatric disorders in general uh, onset much younger. So that's a big difference from physical health disorders. So there's obviously things like autism and ADHD that come on in childhood. Uh, but then most of the general adult psychiatric disorders like psychosis and major depression and so on, bipolar disorder, come on in late, uh, in mid to late adolescence and early adult life in general. I mean, yeah. of course, there's always exception. You know, mm -hmm. So you might get childhood forms. This is, this is in general. Mm -hmm. So I started off, uh, as I mentioned, uh, looking at schizophrenia and doing brain scans. And I was very involved in care of um, people with schizophrenia. But when I went into mood disorders, it struck me how different they were in, mm -hmm. to schizophrenia in many ways. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a number of things about mood disorders. One is that mood disorders is very heterogeneous. So you've got depression, you've got bipolar disorder, but these overlap hugely. Um, and there's different courses and trajectories. Now, generally, we think with people with schizophrenia that on average, um, they, they have uh, some degree of cognitive impairment um, before they have the first episode of illness. And then that doesn't progress too much when, when people have long-standing illnesses, a sort of slow, gentle decline. And when I say cognitive impairment, this is only detectable if you measure groups of people. So it's just a small bit coming down. Mm -hmm. With bipolar disorder, even though in many ways... Um, Bipolar, people with bipolar disorder seem similar to people with schizophrenia. They're actually really quite different when you get into it. So people with bipolar disorder, on average, before they become ill, um, have um, greater cognitive abilities, and they very often perform uh, very well career-wise. So people, mm -hmm. but not not every person with um, bipolar disorder is going to be a you know a QC or head of a, head of a charity or stuff like that, but but on average, people with bipolar disorder uh, can be bright, high-achieving people. 
and that's a that's a bit different from schizophrenia on on average so so there's a clear difference there there's also a clear difference with the episodic nature of bipolar disorder so bipolar disorder and to some extent a lot of depressions people have episodes and then they can get better um, although sometimes they don't get fully better uh, it depends how you you you, you define recovery mm -hmm. uh, but that's very different from some of the other disorders which are chronic and long-lasting so there's a great degree of complexity in bipolar disorder there's a great deal, uh, degree of individual difference and there's a huge number of potential treatments everything from psychotherapies to neurostimulation to pharmacotherapy they can all be applied in bipolar disorder so it's a very rich field in terms of uh, the variety of the experiences but it's also a rich field and potentially very rewarding for people that want to care for it because potentially the outcomes can be uh, really quite um, quite quite good for many people mm -hmm. and um so the, this is I, lo I love the observations I've never really I don't know much about schizophrenia so obviously I, I live with bipolar so that's my experience right um and would you say because the cognitive abilities before my first worst episode I was definitely able to function much better than I am now like I I feel like I've never been able to return to quite that level since although I function very well and very stably. So is that is that kind of what you're saying? Is that it can, it can kind of, for me anyway, it's been an adjustment. I've just had to adjust to this is my new coping ability. This is kind of where I'm at and I can't be in as stressful environments or it can trigger another episode, things like this. Um, and is that kind of what you mean? Well, yes. So, I mean, the comparison with schizophrenia goes back to before um, we used the word schizophrenia. In the 19th century, um, the, the doctors who were interested in this looked to people who had, broadly speaking, severe mental illness, and they split it into two groups. The group who didn't get better, who were called dementia praecox, which means early onset dementia, and the other group who were manic depressive illness. And of course, dementia praecox substantially became schizophrenia. Manic depressive illness more or less became bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. there, are, there, uh, there were changes. Now, of course, some people with schizophrenia will get better and some people with bipolar disorder might have a, a more intractable illness. But in general, that's still the broad picture. Um, what about cognition? Well, there's a fascinating study done in New Zealand called the Dunedin study that looked at a large number of uh, children uh, from, you know, four, four, four years old right through to the mid-20s uh, and did simple tests of cognitive function, simple pencil and paper tests, and then looked when they were 20 at the ones who developed a schizophrenic type illness and the ones who developed a bipolar illness. When they looked back, um, the group who became schizophrenic on average were performing less well than their peers on these tests, even in the first decade of life. And there was a bit of a sort of drop off. And then after they overtly became ill, it didn't go down much thereafter. 
Now, one of my colleagues in King's, Dr. Yolanta Zanelli, who works very closely with me, she's done a long-term follow-up study that shows there is a little bit of a long-term drop-off, but that may be related to age. Now, the situation for people who, in that study, developed uh, bipolar disorder in their 20s was very different. At the age, at the age of uh, 10 or 15 or whatever, they were, on average, performing better than their peers. Mm-hmm. And then the the uh, the drop off happened with episodes of illness. Yes. So this, to my mind, is very instructive. It does just does show that um, you know people with bipolar disorder, on average, are probably slightly uh, cognitively uh, more able than the general population. Um, uh, but then episodes of illness can be uh, you know can be impairing for this. Mm-hmm. The crucial question is. Um, can this get better? And I think there's some evidence that it can. And it really depends what you mean by sort of recovery. Mm-hmm. So one of my colleagues in the United States, Dr. Maurizio Tone, did some work when he was at Harvard. He's, he's now in, I think, Arizona. And he looked at people who'd had mania mm-hmm. and looked at definitions of recovery. So if you defined recovery as being you weren't manic anymore, then the drugs treated that and everyone recovered. If you treated it as not having any symptoms at all, so there was no uh, depression, there was no sleep disturbance, then it was far, far smaller. And if you looked at people who felt that they'd fully recovered themselves, they were fully healthy and able to function, it was much, much smaller. So Mm. this is the challenge that if you think about recovery, it's not just about not being in an illness episode anymore. It's about full, 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 full recovery and fully functioning, mm-hmm. being able to feel that you can do it. Now, I do think that the, 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 the bipolar brain, if I can use such a term, is more plastic. It's got more capacity for recovery. And I think this because I've seen people who've had numerous episodes of illness who get, who get better and can recover you know, uh, most, if not all of their uh, functioning. Yeah. Uh, so, so I don't think we should um, be too pessimistic about that mm-hmm. because I think people can do very well. And there's a number of things that might help them. One is medication. Yeah. Now, medication when people are manic and they get, you know, high doses of antipsychotics and so on, that's associated with being knocked off and not being able to think and so on. Yeah. But there are some of our medications, uh, especially in the long term, might be helpful for the brain and helpful for our cognitive facilities. One of them is lithium. I was about, uh, lithium C. I was going to be lithium. asking you about that too. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're a lithium responder, uh, lithium appears to be helpful for cognition. And uh, th- this is against what some people think. But in actual fact, studies, including recent studies from the United States, tend to show that's true. There's also some other medications that target a particular receptor in the brain, the 5-HT7 receptor. And some of those have been shown to help um, improve cognitive function in depression mm-hmm. and in bipolar. So that's the drug side of it. But we've also been using a, a cognitive remediation therapy, and we've published our preliminary data on this. Now, this was initially created by a colleague of mine in King's, Professor Dane Till-Wikes, who created it for cog- cognition 
to treat the cognitive impairments in schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And it does that. I mean, it does actually produce benefits and improvements in schizophrenia. Uh, not huge, but significant. And I think that's remarkable because bear in mind what I said about the cognitive profile in schizophrenia, that you know people can actually get better on these functions. Now, Till thinks that's because it improves what we call metacognitive uh, functions, which is not the the components of cognition, but the way you use it overall, perhaps your skills for using thinking. So Till and I and very uh, bright young colleagues at King's, Becky Strawbridge and and Demos and Matteo, did a study in bipolar. And we we were rather knocked away that people with bipolar disorder actually did incredibly well with this cognitive mediation uh, therapy, which is a series of um, sessions which are computer-based. It's all about learning new skills and so on. And uh, we published that, and we're now doing a bigger trial of the Mm. cognitive mediation therapy. People have to be recovered from the episode. There's no point in trying to do this type of thing when you've still got all this stuff about, you know, the, uh, the illness episode. But we're... People are where you describe yourself, where you're post-episode, yeah. but you've still got some feeling that you can't, you know, you're not functioning as well as you can, mm. or you were before, uh, are exactly the people that we want for this trial. So we got a big grant, we're starting up, and we'll be recruiting people, um, you know, with a few months' time. And we're very interested to see, really, if we can if we can replicate this result. And mm-hmm. then the question comes after that, what's the best combination between medication and, and cognitive remediation? But mm-hmm. that's further down the road. I must say that Bipolar UK are, um, are on the grant with us. They were helpful in applying for it and they're going to help recruit people who want to take part in the study. So Amazing. we're very grateful to Bipolar UK for that. Amazing. That sounds so interesting. And I mean, I've, I've always been a big believer that for me, medication saved my life. I'm not, um, I'm a big fan of the more tools we've got in our toolkit, the better. And I also understand it can take some time to find the right meds and it can take some time to find the right sort of therapy that speaks to you and all of these things. But I don't, I'm not a big fan of one thing fixes all. Um, I think it is, it is a sort of 360 approach that can lead you to more stability than unwellness um and medication yeah absolutely saved my life and like you say it started off on antipsychotics where i was just Mm. you know it saved my life Mm -hmm. and it didn't feel like living really to me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then as i got more therapy and got more stable and could unpick a few things and work out my triggers and i could go on to not a strong medication you know and it just it it took three or four years to to find that kind of place where I was like yeah okay I think this is kind of the pool I need to be swimming in now after being so unwell um so I love that you're doing this study and um because I'm a big fan of the more tools the better um so a couple of questions what do you think someone can do to prepare for an appointment with their psychiatrist so that they can get the most out of their meeting well, that's a very good question. I mean, the the first thing before I answer it to say is that I'm quite critical of the way we work now in the UK NHS, uh, or we're forced to work in terms of mental health disorders because we are, I mean, when I started in psychiatry, basically the psychiatrist developed a, 
a long-term relationship with patients, and especially with patients who had a relapsing and recurring disorder like bipolar, you would see people and um, they, sorry, that's my spaniel barking. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> he's, he's obviously, obviously having a manic <laughs> very, turn. Very excited uh, about something. <laughs> uh, yeah, usually it's the doorbell going. So um, if, I mean, my view is the best thing you can have is uh, continuity of care with with your medical services. And unfortunately, we are pressurized in the NHS to treat episodes yes. and not the individual and to discharge people. Yes. And, you know, it sometimes means that people have got to see multiple doctors over short periods of time and go through the same story over and over again. So I think if you've got one psychiatrist that you see, you're immediately in a much better position. And yes. I think the key thing is the therapeutic relationship with the psychiatrist or and or the team so that they they know you and you know them unfortunately yeah. that's that's a bit idealistic and that's a real failing i think of the way we're forced to work now i think the other thing that flows from that is that um it's actually very difficult to get a long-term understanding of what the person's like so uh, i think actually information about the past and i mean i have some of my patients uh, write down their history themselves and go over things mm -hmm. um, and when we've got records we can share them with them and they can go back and say well in actual fact I wasn't in the hospital in 2007 it was 2006 and stuff like that and mm -hmm. I, you know I wasn't manic then I was in a mixed state and mm -hmm. you know I, this that and the other so it's very good to share share information be collaborative as possible it's always very important to to take if you can a significant other, someone that knows you very well, preferably someone that lives with you, if that's possible, to give extra information and uh, just just try and uh, pro uh, proceed on that basis, really. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, there's a, a bit like you said about, you know, treatment. There is one no, there is no one magic answer. It's just trying to work together to, to, to do the best you can. But it does, it does appall me that, you know, people will be admitted to hospital manic and then they'll get discharged to another team uh, who don't really know them and then they'll get discharged to someone else, uh, you know, back to the GP. And, you know, where's, where's the continuity of care, really? I know. And, and for, for me, anyway, my experience was a, initially was a six-month wait to see a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I actually ended up going through a whole manic phase and then into suicidal phase, completely unsupported by someone that could understand me more than my GP. And it was really beyond my GP, to be honest. Mm. Um, but then after that, it was it was almost like all the time that I was unwell when I did eventually get to them. I was seen, but then the minute I became stable again, I got discharged and then it would take me to be unwell, to get a referral, to go back on another waiting list for months, to get back in to see them again. And the nature of bipolar, I think, can be that, for me anyway, I can have long periods of time of being quite unstable, but it's needing that help when I need that help, right? And there, there isn't, it's quite inflexible really, isn't it, to what really is a condition that needs some more flexibility, I think, in terms of care. Um, okay, so what are the three most important things someone with bipolar needs to do to stay well and why? 
Well, um, I think the first thing to do is to understand about the illness as much as possible. Yes. And I think uh, you mentioned therapy and, you know, I think therapy is very important. I think there's a, there's a psychological aspect to um, accepting that you've got oh, bipolar yes. disorder, a bit like you would have to accept that you've got, you know, um, any other, any other condition. Yep. Um, very often people go through uh, a phase of denial oh, and yeah. say, you know, <laughs> um, I don't want to have this anymore. I feel fine. You know, yeah. uh, you can't, you can't see it. You can't feel it. And therefore I don't have it. And you just have to actually accept that bipolar disorder is a thing that you have. I've had many patients say that they feel that there are positive aspects to it. And um, I think that's probably true because as I've said, people with bipolar disorder are often uh, more gifted uh, than, than, than average. And that may somehow be linked to the propensity for, uh, for bipolar disorder. So that's the number one thing is just to accept that that's what you've got. That's what the reality is. That's, it's hard, then, um, right? Like, um, oh, no, I mean, I've, yeah. I've just said it in sort of 30 seconds. But, I mean, you know, to live that process. You're completely right. It's very it's a very uh, layered thing to accept. I definitely mm. accepted it in layers, layer by layer. And unfortunately, those layers came in a form of, like you say, being quite defensive or in denial about it and thinking I could beat it, push through. I was going to beat it, win and be normal again. <laughs> not that I was normal in the first place, not that I think normal exists. But then, you know, and then um, layer by layer, oh, okay, just all right okay sobering thoughts of right okay I've actually got to live with this forever I've got to learn how to respect it and be respectful to this condition that I'm living with and learn how to befriend it and get friendly with it warts and all and learn what different um, presentations need of me so when I'm feeling like this what do I need to be doing to take the best care of myself when I'm and it changes right when it when I'm like this what do I need to be doing and learn this new dance rather than trying to fight it and beat it and that for, for me that took years but for me that was kind of the realization of oh okay this isn't going anywhere we've got to cohabit I can't beat this thing out of me we're going to be it's like a roommate that you don't want but you've got to learn to live with <laughs> learn to live with somehow sure. or sure, some sure. way right yeah, yeah. so yeah it's definitely hard um so two other things that someone well the, to do. i mean i think the the other thing is to be appropriately skeptical about what you're told and uh, the reason i say this is because I wouldn't say it was fake information or fake news or fake information, but there's lots of people who have um, views about, well, lots of things. And they're not necessarily that, that, that sort of evidence-based. So, I mean, a, a very good example is the way, and there's still a tendency to do this, the way that people tend to think about therapy versus drugs. Now, my view is that therapy and drugs are both useful tools uh, they're not mutually exclusive and they go very well together and they have the, they're not really fighting for the same territory. No. So, uh, you know, drugs are very often good for uh, acute episodes when people are really unwell. They're very good for preventing relapse. Therapy is very good for the psychological understanding and there's other mm -hmm. things like cognitive remediation therapy. But we still get, we still hear from 
some, some people, including some mental health professionals, that they somehow think that drugs and therapy are contradictory. You know, to, to, for therapy really to work, you, you can't have drugs. Um, and, you know, drugs are somehow masking it. To really get to the cause, you need therapy. Mm. Now, to my mind, that's astonishingly naive. What you really want is to use every tool that's going. But I, I have some patients who come to me and said, well, you know, I've seen so-and-so who says that they, they can really sort me, but I've got to come off the drugs. Uh, and that, to me, needs to be questioned. So, and it's not just about that. It's about everything. You know, there's, there's lots of... We've, we've all had to turn into amateur public health doctors with COVID. We've all had to make our own judgments about vaccines and masks and so on. You know, a large majority of the population has gone with what I would consider to be the sensible option. Some people haven't. Um, but, you know, and some, some of those have suffered the consequences. So people with bipolar disorder have got to be, a, a, have got to be skeptical and got to be willing to weigh the evidence, talk to people, talk to their doctors and work out mm -hmm. what's best. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, the, you know, the conspiracy theories about various different things or the, the simple black and white positions where, you know, uh, therapy good or therapy bad or drugs good or drugs that's just not the way no uh and the way it is so that's the second thing i would completely say, agree no you, I, I think anything that's like binary thinking yeah, yeah where yeah. it's all or nothing this is terrible this is amazing i think if you're going to someone and they're giving you advice that is all or nothing type thinking or all or nothing type advice like you say definitely i would definitely be cautious about that because there's no one rule that fits everyone. And likewise for medication, I started on antipsychotics quite a high dose to the point I was only awake eight hours a day. It saved my life. Does that serve me well now, 11 years later? Absolutely not. So it's, where are you at in your journey? How severe is your episode? Also, there's no way I would have had the capacity to have the emotional tolerance to deal with my therapy sessions unless my depression had lifted a bit it would have probably been enough to really push me to act on my suicidal thoughts so I think there's an element of medication it, it everything has a place right there's all these different things have places and they can all be helpful and when you go into one extreme or another that can be really a dangerous way to think and actually can bring quite a risk to life I think having gone through the journey I've gone through and knowing people that live with bipolar, I think um, anyone that's telling you that that's absolutely bad and that's absolutely good, definitely be cautious <laughs> about that type yeah, of Yeah, yeah, no, 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 I, I, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And uh, I mean, with therapy, I do think you've got to be well enough to make use of the therapy. I mean, I've, I've had numerous patients over the years who, especially people with depression, Mm -hmm. uh, or the depressed phase of bipolar disorder who said you know it didn't work for me and no. I blame myself and said well you're not actually well enough to make no. use of this you know there comes a point where you'll be able to make use of therapy and to yep. sort of uh, do do that particular form of work completely uh, agree if so I'd gone into number, those that's I'd, number two if, if I'd gone into those therapy sessions when I was as low as I was there's no way I would have been able to take on board half of what that session had to offer me 
it was only once I got lifted out of it a bit that I actually had the brain space to kind of take it, be curious about what was being said, think about what was being said, to go home, process it. You know, when I was in the depths of despair, I barely had enough energy to scrape a plate of food together and have a wash every two weeks. You know, it's just there was no I had no capacity for it's hard. Therapy is work. It's not magic. Right. When you go to a magic wand, I used to think it was, (laughs) I used to think, oh yeah, they're going to cast a magic spell on me and I'm going to be all fixed, you know, hop in, hop out. But it's not like that. It is hard work. And to do work, you need to have energy, capacity, thinking space to do that work. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And the third thing. Well, the third thing is, I think I would title it just generally look after yourself Mm. so um and be part of this is not being ashamed to say that i've got bipolar disorder therefore i can't do that you know so uh i mean obviously you know uh we in psychoeducation which is a very important form of um treatment where people learn a lot more about the disorder we talk about triggers and things you shouldn't do uh and you know i mean if if you had celiac disease or you were gluten intolerant, you wouldn't think, oh well, I can go and have you know a big a big loaf of bread because it won't yeah. matter this time. And similarly, if you're if you've got bipolar disorder, and you know there's certain triggers, and you know that if you go to some party and drink too much and stay up late, you know, and so on and so forth, that might trigger an episode. Then you've got to be prepared to say, well, sorry, I can't do that because mm. because uh, you know I'm bipolar and that might an episode just like you wouldn't you know um disrespect your your gluten intolerance Mm -hmm. and i also think related to that is also looking after your physical health Mm -hmm. so we know people with severe mental um illness you know depression schizophrenia bipolar they die on average 10 years younger than the uh than the general population and a, a small number, but tragic, but relatively small number of those excess deaths are suicide. Most of them are the same things, the deaths are due to the same things that kill everyone else, which is mm-hmm. cardiovascular disease, uh, cancer, and diabetes, and so on. Uh, but they're more pronounced in people with bipolar disorder because of uh, basically uh, more risk factors related to lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's uh, one of the best things you can do actually to reduce your risk of dementia is improve your cardiovascular uh, mm. uh, risk factors. So the things that you should you hear about for your heart and your circulation, you know, keeping an eye on your weights and um, mm-hmm. uh, not um, your blood pressure and so on and so forth, all of those actually reduce your risk of dementia because there's a vascular component to that. So people with bipolar disorder and people with other severe mental illness, their physical health needs get get relatively neglected. I mean, again, I think this is a, a thing that we do very badly in the healthcare side of things because we tend to think about people having a mental disorder or a psychiatric um, or a physical disorder. We even have different hospitals. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, someone comes to my clinic uh, in the Maudsley with, with bipolar disorder, and then they may go, and I do have patients do this, they, they cross the road to King's College Hospital and go to an outpatient appointment to for their liver problem or mm-hmm. their heart problem. And, you know, it's the same person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, we need to have a more rounded view of it. 
So that's the third thing is look after yourself. Be, be aware, as you say, that you're, you know, you're living with a difficult flatmate who potentially can be very rewarding. <laughs> or potentially but, uh, very disruptive. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, but you've also got to look after yourself. Yeah. and look after yourself in the round. So that's yeah. that's the third thing I would say. And um, you've touched on this just slightly, but what would you say to someone who's thinking about taking lithium for bipolar but feeling unsure? Because there is, there is a sort of, or can be, quite a wariness to lithium. So even when I talk to other people that live with bipolar, um, myself included, it's like, oh, well, I'll try all, everything else first. And that's like my, my last port of call. So for me, it definitely was my last consideration as a medication option. And I hear that quite often from others too. And for me, it was certainly unfounded and it's ridiculous. I went and when I found out I had bipolar, I read everything I could. I went online, you know, I did, I, I wanted to learn as much about it as possible because I figured the more I knew, the more chance I had of being stable. But yet when it came to lithium, it was almost like a fear and I just didn't want to know anything about it. <laughs> I was like, I'll exhaust all my other options. And then if nothing else works, then I'll try it. Um, but the curiosity was still there, but there was a fear there too, curious and fearful. So what would what would you say to someone about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think lithium gets a bad press. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you look at the evidence, lithium, it... it it's, it treats mania, prevents mania. It treats depression, it prevents depression. It reduces suicide rates. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is extraordinary. It reduces suicide rates in people that take it. And also in the long-term studies for bipolar, but also for unipolar disorder, the group that do the best are the people that are on lithium. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's not a magic cure. As you've said, nothing is. But we know that for people with bipolar one, which mm -hmm. is where you have manic episodes. A third are excellent responders. So a third do very well. A third are partial responders and a third don't respond. We actually have a big European study at the moment. We're doing in 15 centres across Europe, putting two in the UK, us and my old department in Newcastle. Uh, and we are looking at uh, personalised approaches, biomarkers, to see if we can predict who, who the good responders are going to be. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we'll be able to do that in the future. But... It's worthwhile thinking about lithium, especially for long-term outcomes, because it does seem to be very helpful. Um, we're quite poor at using lithium. I think lots of doctors are uh, feel unskilled about using it. I mean, it's extraordinary that they do, um, but nevertheless, even even some psychiatrists don't like to use it because they think somehow it's too complicated. Where it's reasonably straightforward to use lithium. Um, people get the dose range wrong. Uh, I mean, there are, there is always a worry about lithium in the kidney if you've been on it long term. Mm -hmm. But we know that if you stay in the dose range between 0.6 and 0.8 millimoles per litre, we know that you get the best, that's the sweet spot for the benefits mm -hmm. versus the harms. And in Sweden, when they introduced that as the range over the next 20, uh, 20 25 years, they didn't have anyone with severe kidney disease in the whole of Sweden on due to lithium. So I think we could improve the understanding of lithium. We could improve mm -hmm. the, uh, the administration of lithium. And uh, I think it's always worthwhile considering. And, you know, the other thing that I always say about lithium is lithium isn't a drug. Lithium is an element. I mean, it's the third element in the periodic table. 
it's around everywhere. It's in the environment. And we've actually shown that um, higher environmental lithium, so that's higher lithium, mostly in the drinking water, if you look on a countrywide basis, is associated with lower suicide rates. So there's definitely something to it. Mm-hmm. And I think for many bipolars, not all, but for many people with bipolar disorder, it's the absolute bedrock of good treatment for them. Mm. And so for someone that's never been on lithium, what would they expect in terms of, because from what I understand, it's not as simple as just try this tablet and see. There's a bit more to it. So someone that's not on lithium and they've tried all the other things and they're still finding themselves quite unstable and it's very disruptive to their life in unmanageable at times. Um, and they wanted to look at lithium. I mean, what would what would the first three or six months of their life kind of look like while they navigate starting lithium, for example? Well, I mean, we, we start lithium quite slowly. We check the blood levels. Generally, it's very well tolerated. I mean, in my clinic, one of the main problems is some people get a bit of tremor mm-hmm. and some people have to uh, get up in the middle of the night for the bathroom because lithium impairs your kidney's ability to concentrate uh, your, your urine. And so you get more uh, urine. And also sometimes it makes the thyroid sluggish. Uh, all of those things are treatable. Um, the main thing I would say is that um, to give to fully evaluate whether lithium is helping or not, you need to give it time. Mm-hmm. You need to give it prob- And in the European study, we're evaluating it over a year because mm-hmm. we think it can take a whole year to, to sort of fully develop the benefits. Mm-hmm. I mean, we tend to think about drugs a bit like painkillers. You know, we, we take it, we want an effect right away. Um, lithium isn't like that. It's something that you really have to judge, especially with a, a moving baseline as you get mm-hmm. bipolar disorder over a reasonably prolonged period of time. Uh, but generally it's tolerated in terms of, I mean, if you compare it to the antipsychotics, which cause sedation and weight gain and so on, the, the, the side effects of lithium are a good deal uh, more tolerable, I think. Mm-hmm. And do you have to go for many tests? Um, so for example, if, I, if you were to give me tablets, I'd just go away and take them. But with lithium, do I have to come in often and see for checks? Well, once you get the lithium, once you get the lithium stable in your bloodstream, so so if I, you know if I started lithium now, I'd probably get a blood test in about a week, and then those might get changed. I might get another week. It's, you, you you should leave a week, and then every so often, every six months or so, you've got to check kidney function, uh, thyroid, and mm-hmm. calcium, and and those are done with a simple blood test. So once you're stable, and then you need to get the information about lithium. You need to know that. Uh, lithium interacts with the uh, with some drugs. You don't want to take it with what we call an, a non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatory like brufen. Okay. Um, you 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 want to be very careful. You don't get dehydrated because mm-hmm. then the lithium can get relatively more concentrated and so on and so forth. But you know none of these things are more um, more exacting than if you went on insulin for for mm-hmm. diabetes. And of course. Mm-hmm. To some extent, lithium for bipolar is a bit like insulin for type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And how does it interact? Um, I mean, I've chosen to stop drinking alcohol over the last three or four years, three years, three years, um, because I just know it doesn't do my mental health any good. But in terms of lithium with alcohol, I mean, what's the interaction with that? Is it an absolute no, no? How does that present itself? 
Well, it's not an absolute no-no, and mm -hmm. you can drink. I mean, we would always say that people should drink within the uh, government limits, which are now pretty modest. Um, but you've got to be careful you don't get dehydrated. Uh, alcohol, you know, can cause you to increase your chance of having a seizure. That might get more if you're on lithium and so on and so forth. Uh, but generally, you need to be uh, cautious when using alcohol. And I would say that you shouldn't have more than you know, a couple of smallish drinks at a time if you're on lithium. Yeah. Um, alcohol and bipolar have a have a, a very enmeshed relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's a big what they call comorbidity, where the, the the number of people who've got a who drink too much and have a alcohol problems higher in bipolar than the general population, and that that seems to somehow be there from the get go. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of my colleagues in Oxford. Now, Professor Goodwin did a study looking at young people who hadn't yet been diagnosed as bipolar formally, but, you know, had uh, satisfied the criteria. So they got them just at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, and these were people in their early 20s. And they matched them to, to other students. And the, the rate of uh, prob problematic drinking of alcohol in the, the general student population was about 5% or so. In the people who were just beginning just becoming clear they were bipolar it was 35 percent. so mm -hmm. there's obviously a big mm -hmm. big overlap there alcohol is a destabilizing factor it's not good for your general health you know mm -hmm. uh, so you've got to be very careful with that i would say would you say there's similar findings with recreational drug use as well with the population that live with bipolar yeah i think it depends on what the recreational drug use is mm -hmm. um i mean i think there's a particular issue with cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, cannabis has got this cultural uh, position, at least in some cultures, North America particularly, of being a of being a recreational drug that doesn't do you any harm. Yeah. Now we know that that's nonsense. Um, we also know that cannabis has gotten a lot stronger, mm -hmm. and some of the cannabis that's available in South London, for example, is just massively more potent than it used to be you know when i was university uh, all those years ago mm. uh, and we do see psychotic episodes being being provoked by cannabis mm -hmm. by um and we do see anxiety we do mm -hmm. see some cognitive impairment uh, provoked by anxiety and yeah i still have some people who who deny that that's the case i mean it, it, it's extraordinary so you know, I'm by no means a Puritan, and there's there's parts of cannabis, the cannabidiol, for example, which may be beneficial, but the high potency THC can be really quite uh, bad for mental health. And I'm not sure if I see any evidence of any benefits of cannabis, you know, in terms of in terms of a health related parameter. So that's one thing. Um, but if you look at other recreational drugs. There's a huge interest now in psychedelics. Mm -hmm. um, we are doing some of this work and my colleague, Dr. James Rucker is leading a research group that works with me uh, looking at psychedelics like psilocybin and other variants um, for things like treatment resistant depression. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't recommend that anyone with bipolar disorder goes out and takes these recreationally, no. but I think we are beginning to think that we might evaluate these drugs for benefits in things like bipolar disorder as well. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think you've got to take each each recreational drug uh, in the round. Um, you know, there are medical uses of some some um, some cannabis derived drugs. I mean, for epilepsy in children and for perhaps uh, pain and terminal care and so on. But that's very different from a sort of blanket. Oh, if you take this recreationally, yeah. it, will, yeah. it, it will do you good. So you've got to be careful. I think the other thing, just to sound, again, like a total, you know, miserable uh, old, <laughs> old Scottish doctor. Where are you going? Is, <laughs> well, one of, my go issues, with this. <laughs> one of my big issues with recreational drugs is you don't know what you're taking. You True. absolutely don't know what you're taking. So we have something called good good manufacturing production for drugs. So when you go to the chemist and buy paracetamol or aspirin, it's got to be of a certain quality. You know what you're mm-hmm. taking. Mm-hmm. When I worked in Vancouver, my colleagues in the addiction field there looked at um, street cannabis and, and bought some and took it away and analysed it in the lab. And it had lots of stuff in it had PCP, there were opiates, it, it had insecticides, it had every, I mean, you've got no idea what you're taking. So I'm afraid my, my, my analogy is if you're, if you're taking a, a medicine, you're, you're drinking bottled water or water out the tap that you know is clean and pure. Yeah. If you're buying recreational drugs, it's like drinking water from a puddle in the high street you just don't know what else is in there yeah so, so i'm i'm sorry to be so miserable but no you know, but to, it's true. To, to introduce a horrible mental image but mm. i not knowing what you're actually taking is and, and you know people would say well that doesn't apply if you grow your own cannabis or pick your own mushrooms but yeah but that i mean there's far more out there but do you think that in the way that people are the usage aspect so rather than the effect it might have but the population of people that live with bipolar are they higher recreational drug users than the general population in the same way that they are with alcohol i mean yes they are Mm. um but remember that's that's still not all people with bipolar disorder and you know i've got lots of patients with bipolar disorder who who've never really had a problem with alcohol, never taken drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not a, it's not a given, but certainly on average, it's, it's, it's slightly higher. It, it's a bit yeah. higher. Yeah. Slightly higher. Yeah. Um, and I do think, I do wonder myself included if, if there's parts of it for me, you know, when I think back to before I was diagnosed, certainly a part of my, you know, going out, getting smashed and all the rest of it was was a way to cope with how I was feeling. And, mm. you know, I, I didn't get diagnosed till I was 30. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I've gone my whole 20, I moved out of home at 15. So I've gone 15 years undiagnosed, you know, mm. causing absolute mm. chaos everywhere I go, mm. <laughs> you know. Um, but part of my reckless behaviour was certainly because I, now looking back, a way to cope um mm. you know a way to cope with these because i you know just because i wasn't diagnosed doesn't mean i wasn't living with bipolar i absolutely no, of course was. Not, of course just not. didn't yeah. know right so mm. you know it's just and this long period to get diagnosed i think leaves people certainly myself more vulnerable to ending up in reckless spaces because you you feel like life's happening to you <laughs> you know no absolutely no absolutely 
Um, no, absolutely. I, yeah, I think one of the things you're saying is that I'm trying to say take 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 back control without sounding like a Brexiteer here. But I mean, I think that's what people with bipolar do. They end up taking back control of their themselves and their illness, really. But, you know, I think like um, for me, I certainly felt a level of uh, autonomy being restored in my life yeah. rather than yeah, yeah. Life, life happening to me. I was able to, you know, take a step back and have a look at myself and think, right, you know, am I going to go down that road rather than just finding myself down some road and not even knowing how I'd got there, which is basically how I spent, you know, the first part of my life for sure. Um, thank you so much for today. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, yeah, I mean, just, just before we finish, hmm. um, I think what you're saying about the delay in diagnosis, I mean, this is something that comes out time and again. Mm -hmm. This is something that Bipolar UK has found in the survey, that it's mm -hmm. still just about 10 years before people are properly diagnosed. We've yep. got to get better at that. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, people are people are sort of crying in the wilderness without, you know, without without getting diagnosed. I mean, a diagnosis isn't, isn't the end, but it's the beginning of yes. getting proper understanding and help, I think. I think but, it's the beginning of bringing some sort of awareness to yourself that a hmm. this is even a thing and that this thing is a thing that is in your life now because for me it was a lack of awareness I just thought mm -hmm. this is just how I am hmm. you know hmm. that description of um on the mood scale and it says no feelings of mania no feelings of depression outlook outlook on life is good hmm. <laughs> right well when when I first went and I saw that I mean, I was in a bit of a paranoid state anyway at the time. But I thought, this is a trick. Mm. So they're, giving me, <laughs> they're giving me this scale and I've got to go away and I've got to fill it out. And I looked at that and I thought, yeah, that's this like a red herring question. It's obviously part of the mm. assessment. <laughs> mm. But the reason I thought that is because I had never experienced that in my life. To my recollection, mm. I could never remember a day where it was like no mania, no depression, outlook on life is good. I was mm. like, in my head, I was like, yeah, that doesn't exist. <laughs> That's clearly a red herring question. And um, mm. I got put on antipsychotics. And within a couple of weeks, I plotted that feeling. Mm. And it was mm. just, I couldn't believe it. I went into the office, I was like, you're never going to guess what's happened. <laughs> so I was mm. just like, tell me, Emma, tell me what's happened. And I was like, mm. see this here? I've just ticked that mm. and they looked at me and went and to, you know tell me more type of thing and I was like but I didn't believe that existed because that has never mm. been something I've ever experienced until mm. today you know mm. um so the lack of awareness by not being mm. diagnosed mm. led me to believe that my normal was mm. not was the av not normal? My normal was the average person's experience, and it no, really no, sure, sure. wasn't right. <laughs> so sure. far from the average experience, it was crackers. Well, that's a good place to end because that's very hopeful. Yeah. So, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's you're been very lovely welcome, to talk Emma. to you. Very nice to chat to you. Nice to talk to you. Hopefully, we'll chat again. Okay, yes, take thank care. You. Oh, Bye. I must I must go and deal with that spaniel now. Yeah, <laughs> do. <laughs>
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Let's Talk Bipolar, the podcast brought to you by Bipolar UK. Please go to our website, www.bipolaruk.org, for all of our resources and all of the support that we can offer you.